Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. I don't have to tell you that we live in a wicked world, one that is harsh, hazardous, and unfair. Some would ask, why is there evil anyway? Where did it come from? Why doesn't God do something about it? Why is there evil if God really exists? Well, these are good questions, and the Bible has the answers. Are you ready to listen to them? In today's message, evangelist Mr. Eugene Higgins takes up these questions. He discusses the three sources of calamity and pain in our world. One is nature, which despite the enduring Mother Nature terminology, is basically indifferent to what happens in our lives. Then there's Satan, whose activity always proves to be malevolent and destructive to man. And he's busy in our world today. And finally there is God, whose purposes and designs are always benevolent and just, who only desires man's good. Mr. Higgins tells us about how it was that one man brought sin into the world and its consequences in the first place, and how it was that there was one man who brought redemption from its bondage and new life to enjoy as it should be enjoyed. In our uncertain and unstable world, we trust that you will find Mr. Higgins' message not only one of comfort, but of salvation for your soul. I'm going to read again, as we did last evening in Romans chapter 5, this time at verse 12. The apostle wrote, Wherefore, as by one man, that of course is Adam, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all, for that all have sinned. Then down the chapter in verse 19, he adds again a reference to Adam, as by one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners, and now he is about to refer to the Lord Jesus. He writes, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Allow me to read that to you again. It brings Adam and Christ into contrast. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous righteous. The topic tonight is where the virus has come from, but in a broader sense, we want to consider why there is evil in our world. I would be foolish to tell you that I have all the answers to life's problems and mysteries. I certainly do not. But I can tell you what is clear to us from the Bible. Apart from harmful things that one human being can do to another human being, there are three sources of apparent calamities. There is nature, there is Satan, and there is God. However, there are vast and monumental differences in the motives or purposes behind these sources. Nature is always indifferent, always indifferent. The tsunami does not strike an island because of ill will towards the island or the islanders. The volcano does not direct its magma and lava at a town that angered it. The tornado doesn't select someone's property out of vindictiveness. 
Its random course of destruction can demolish one house and leave a nearby one untouched. Nature is mindless. It's unthinking. It's indifferent. It doesn't consider the importance of the person caught in the blizzard. It doesn't consider the age of the child trapped by the landslide. It doesn't consider the number of people swallowed up by an earthquake. Now, it is true that human activity can trigger a natural catastrophe, but as to motive and intent, nature is non-moral. But while nature is always indifferent, Satan is always malevolent, malevolent and cruel. Every action of his is intended to harm, hurt, deceive, destroy, and defraud. In his interactions with the human family, the devil was a murderer and liar from the very beginning. He uses people like pawns to accomplish his malicious purposes, like that ancient juggernaut. He, he crushes all in his path, careless of the body count and the souls that are eternally lost. The devil is motivated by one all-consuming emotion, hatred of God. Since God is beyond his reach, he directs his venom against anything that God loves. Witness his ages-long attempt to exterminate the Jewish people because God chose them. The human brutality unleashed against the Son of God when he was here was orchestrated by the devil who found willing accomplices in us, in sinful mankind. Now, while nature is always indifferent and Satan is always malevolent, God is always benevolent and just. This is despite the fact that as sinners, we have forfeited any right to his care or to his intervention. We really have no right to either demand or, or question why God doesn't intervene on our behalf or, or do what we ask him or answer our prayers or spare me or spare my family. History and the Bible are filled with examples, nonetheless, of God's offsetting the dire effects of sins or catastrophes on certain occasions. And when God sends something that seems adverse, it is always because there was no other way of bestowing the greater blessing that he wished for mankind. For instance, he allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery and to end up in an Egyptian prison so that Joseph could eventually become the prime minister and provide life-saving counsel and supplies during a seven-year famine. This also provided Joseph's entire family with a place of safety during those terrible years of scarcity and want. Later, when he wished to free the Israelites from the merciless slavery in which they were held, and during which their newborn sons were being murdered, he didn't start with a Passover night. He didn't begin with deaths that would occur on that unforgettable Passover night. He started with miracles in the hopes of Pharaoh's hard heart being softened and with some reverence toward the living God letting the Israelites go. But when Pharaoh's stubbornness and intransigence caused him to refuse every previous warning, every act of mercy, and every display of divine power, there was no other course but judgment. So that the merciful act of emancipation, the freeing of an entire nation from slavery, could be accomplished. Again, think about the misery that Jonah, the runaway prophet, endured. That was arranged by God. But it was arranged by God so that tens of thousands of human beings could be saved through the preaching of Jonah in the city of Nineveh. Years ago, Sir James Thornhill was painting the inside of the cupola of St. Paul's in London. After finishing one of the compartments, he stepped back gradually to see how it would look at a distance. And with his eyes fixed on the painting, he receded so far that unknown to him, 
He was almost at the edge of the scaffolding. Half a moment more, and he would have fallen to his death. Another worker near the painting, seeing the man's danger, snatched up one of the brushes, and he spoiled the painting by smearing it with paint. And, and Sir James, enraged, sprang forward to save his painting. The man explained, had I called out to you, you would naturally have turned around to look behind you, and the surprise of finding yourself on the very edge would have made you fall. I had no other method of retrieving you, of, of pulling you out of your danger than what I did. Now, whenever God sends some problem into our life, it is to draw us from danger, from perishing, to bring us from the brink of destruction. Now, Genesis chapter 3 shows us that when sin entered our world, it made a profound and tragic difference in the nature of our world as well as in human nature. So when we want to know where evil and calamities and in the case in which we're speaking, pandemics come from, the Bible gives us the answer. Just as mankind changed from being innocent creatures, harmoniously interacting with God, the creator, our world changed from being a perfect paradise to a creation under bondage. None of us completely understands all that this entailed, but it did involve the imposing on our world of all the ills that sin creates and in an environment as well as in a human heart. The Apostle Paul spoke about the whole creation, the whole creation groaning and travailing in pain under the curse of sin, waiting for the moment when the Lord Jesus returns to, to set it free from the curse that sin imposed on it. So if I could just sum up this first part of the meeting, I, I can at least tell you this. None of the destructive forces that caused such catastrophes in our world would ever be happening if it were not for sin's presence and impact in our world. And when the Lord Jesus returns, even nature itself, including most of the animal world, will revert to its Edenic character and condition, the paradise. It will then be seen how perfect this world was when it came from the hand of God. But all of that leads us to an even more personal consideration. What we see in our world is very similar to what we see in our heart. As we've noted, our world is unique, beautiful. It's a wonderful planet, perfectly suited to our needs as humans. And yet at the same time, it is hazardous, dangerous, and menacing, filled with countless perils and threats to human existence. Similarly, each of us, if honest, would have to admit that we see both good and evil in our hearts. Humans are capable of incredible acts of beauty, unselfishness, altruism. And the very same humans are capable of unspeakable acts of brutality and violence. If, if both the world in which we live and we humans were created by a loving creator, how can this be? As we noted, the Bible explains this seeming contradiction in our world and in our hearts in very clear and plain language. Romans 5 records two actions that have affected every human being. The first has to do with Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam and the tree of knowledge. Here again are the words we read. As by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all for that all have sinned. The moment that Adam sinned, a darkness rushed into his soul. Instantaneously alienated from his creator, Adam's reaction to the God in whose presence he once rejoiced was completely warped and distorted. 
He now dreaded meeting God. Adam's conscience sprang into activity, accusing him of wrongdoing. You see, the devil had deceptively hidden all these baleful effects from both Eve and Adam. But now the damage was done. Adam was guilty. Adam was a sinner. Eden's king and queen had been deposed without a shot fired. And the moment Adam heard God calling, Adam, where are you? Adam began calculating how to make excuses and whom to blame for his present condition because fear had replaced joy. Guilt had replaced innocence and selfishness had replaced love. And the moment, as you know from Genesis 3, the moment that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, they entered a world that was made harsh, hazardous, and unfair by their own sin. Because they were the head of the race, their having turned from God would have an impact on every person in Adam's race, in every generation, all over the world, until the end of time. And all of this by one man's opening this world to sin and death. In the 19th century, it was not known that mosquitoes carried yellow fever. New York City, Philadelphia, New Orleans, numerous other places all experienced serious epidemics that spread rapidly and killed thousands. We're thinking of a pandemic. This at least was an epidemic. In July 1878, an outbreak of yellow fever was reported in Vicksburg, south of Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis officials reacted by stopping travel to the city from the south to make sure that the plague would not come into their area. But on August 1st, 1878, one man, a man named William Warren, a steamboat worker, slipped past the restrictions, the cordons, and into a restaurant on the Mississippi shore. That restaurant was owned by a woman named Kate Beyonda. The next day, Mr. Warren was hospitalized, and he was sent to President's Island for quarantine, where he died. Now, that was August 1st. The first Memphis resident to contract yellow fever was the owner of that restaurant, Kate Beyonda, who died on the 13th. After that, yellow fever infection spread throughout the Memphis area. An average of 200 people not became ill. An average of 200 people died every day for the rest of August and on into September. Corpses were everywhere, a near continual ringing of funeral bells. Half the city's doctors died. The epidemic ended with the first frost in October, but by that time, 20,000 people just in the southeast area of the United States had died. And that death and suffering happened in the Memphis area because of one man's disobeying the law of Memphis. All the misery that we, that the human race has experienced happened because one man disobeyed the command of God and subjected this world and all his race to the most destructive force in the entire universe of God, sin. But then I read to you, didn't I, the great contrast, because in contradistinction to Adam and that tree that he should not partake of, think about Christ and the tree of Calvary, the tree that God sent him to partake of. Here are the words from Romans 5. As by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man shall many be made righteous. Now, since Paul uses the word many in both cases, even though, of course, Adam's sin had an impact on all his race, 
we realize that Paul is not saying many instead of saying few. He's not, he's not making a, a comparison of the quantity. He's not suggesting a limitation, but he is conveying in both cases the vastness of the effect. In other words, Paul is saying, think of how many became sinners through one man's disobedience. Think of how many have been saved by one man's death. Consider with me for a moment the unparalleled pity, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus. What would compel the Savior to leave the throne of heaven for a cross at Calvary? Why would he step from all that glory, worship, wealth, and comfort and come into a world of pain, poverty, rejection, and crucifixion? The Bible gives us two reasons. First, his obedience to his father whom he loved. He said he came to do his father's will. He said that Calvary would display his love for his father. He said that God sent him to provide salvation for the world. So the first reason was his obedience to his father that he loved. And the other reason given is his love for you. His love for sinners who were perishing. Paul wrote this. When he understood this truth, Paul wrote these wonderful words. The son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. He would write later that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The Apostle John would describe Christ's love as being to the uttermost. Some people imagine that God is angry with us and wants to punish us, but that the Lord Jesus and even other people, people who are in heaven who once lived here, that they intercede with God and they, they turn him from his anger and his annoyance with us. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. And what brought the Lord Jesus into this world was compassion and love for perishing men and women, for you. Think about the unlimited provision that Christ has made. Just as Adam's sin had far-reaching effects for every human, so the obedience of Christ in going to the cross and suffering for sin has had far-reaching effects for all mankind. He gave himself, the Bible says, a ransom for all. The entire human race is offered salvation, and each one who trusts Christ, each one, without exception, receives eternal life. None is excluded from this offer of salvation. None is excluded except those who exclude themselves. Think about the unconquerable protection that Christ provides. Adam failed us. As our representative in the garden, Adam chose to do what he wished and what he thought would most benefit him. This left us vulnerable to the devil's tactics. It condemned us to death. It consigned us to judgment in eternity. Christ, by dying, lifts his people out of ruin, imparts to them eternal life, and secures their everlasting safety. Years ago, there was a gospel preacher named Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. He learned that a woman who was attending his meetings was to be evicted from her house because she couldn't pay the rent. First thing on a Monday morning, Dr. Morgan went to the woman's house. He had the money to pay her rent. He could hardly wait to tell her the good news. He hammered on the door, but there was no answer. He knocked again, but still no answer. Deeply disappointed, eventually he went away. Sometime later, he discovered that the woman had actually been in the house all the time. She had been afraid to answer the door because she thought it was the landlord who had come for the rent and she didn't have the money. Now, all the time that she was cowering in fear in the house, 
The person who was knocking at her door was actually someone bringing her the very thing that she needed. And all the time that you have run from God, turning away from Christ, ignoring his word, and neglecting his gospel, he's been seeking you to give you the greatest blessing that can come to a human being, his great salvation. Stop running away. Answer the door. Trust him as your savior. If sin is the source, the cause for all the misery that mankind has endured, let me tell you that Christ is the source of the richest blessing you could ever have. Trust him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Indeed, Christ is the source of richest blessing. God has provided a remedy for the mess that we caused in the first place. Sin can be removed. You can be cleansed from your sin, saved. Christ has died to put away sin and will one day establish a new world of peace and order. Are you interested? If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday, as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. If you've been challenged by today's message, and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is John Sharp. And thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul.